Well, amen and welcome uh, again to King's Cross. If you're new with us, my name is Clint, lead pastor, one of the elders of this church. We're glad that you're here, glad that you're crowded in and meeting uh, potentially a new neighbor right beside you. Uh, so thankful uh, for everybody uh, being here and the work uh, those getting uh, folks in to get a seat. We're going to continue this morning uh, in a series uh, that we're calling Authentically Christian, Following King Jesus Together. And in this series, uh, we're just meaning to look at, again, a Christian, what a Christian is, is a follower of Christ. And a church is just a group of Christians committed to following Christ together. And so as we look through this, we want to ask the question, we don't want just some kind of cultural Christianity, we want the real thing. We want the Christianity of Bible. And so we're just walking through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, asking a question and looking and studying on what does it look like to be an authentic Christian according to the text. Last week, uh, we talked about three marks uh, of a true Christian. This week, we're going to look at three marks of the true Christ, Christ himself. We're going to meditate and think on who Jesus is in chapter 15, verse 29, and we'll go all the way through chapter 16, verse 12. And there are three pretty simple interactions, uh, three simple scenes uh, in this text. Jesus heals a bunch of people in 29 to 31. He feeds 4,000 people in 32 to 39. Then over in chapter 16, verse 1 through 12, he teaches his disciples about the false teaching, uh, the danger of the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you'll flip back in your Bible and just look back to chapter 14, what you'll notice is the first two of these stories are very similar. So there's a feeding of 5,000 people, and there's some healings just in that chapter as well. So you look in chapter 14, you see this, uh, kind of these accounts. You look in chapter 15, we see these accounts. And you might have the question, why did the Holy Spirit inspire the writer to write to us very similar accounts in such close proximity to one another? There are different details in the accounts, but very similar kind of main points, the, the thrust of what we're learning about the authentic Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Both healing sections teach us that Jesus has authority over all disease. Both miraculous feedings teach us Jesus' power to provide. And all of the passages show us his immense compassion for all people. So again, we're going to look at three marks, particularly of the authentic Jesus. And if you are this morning, if you're here and you're a visitor, and you're like, I don't know the Jesus of Christianity. I don't know the Jesus of the Bible. I've heard different cultural Jesus. I'm not sure that I want to follow him. We just want to show you the real Jesus in the text. And we want you to see his compassion. We want you to be moved to say, no, if that's Jesus, then I want him. I want you to see the glory of the kind of people we find that the authentic Jesus himself actually wants. And what you'll see as we study and look at King Jesus is that he's more powerful, more compassionate, more protective than you think he is. I don't care how seasoned you are in your walk with Christ. He's more compassionate than you think. I don't care how mature and how long you walk with God. He's more powerful than you think he is. I don't care how long you've known him and studied scripture and hidden scripture in your heart. His wisdom to guide you through this life is greater than you know. And this is what we see from the Lord Jesus. He transforms the lowly. He satisfies the hungry. And he protects his sheep all to the glory of God. So let me again ask for Christ's help. And we will go in because we got a lot to cover. Father, we come to you through Christ our Lord. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. I plead with you, give me help. I have zero desire to do anything other than be faithful according to your word. Whatever desire I have beyond that is sin. I confess it. I ask for forgiveness. I ask that you would kill it by your spirit and serve these, your people, with your word for your glory and their eternal joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First mark of the authentic Jesus. Jesus' power 
is greater than you perceive. Jesus' power is greater than you perceive. Now, in these first two sections, the, the healings that we'll see in the feeding of the 4,000, really the observations his, about his power and his compassion are in both sections. But just for the sake of clarity, emphasizing the particular characteristics, we're going to take one in the first point, one in the second point. The passage begins with Jesus in transition from the interaction with the Canaanite woman that we saw last week. If you weren't here last week, what you need to know is Jesus basically put the Pharisees on blast for, for basically elevating the, the traditions of man up into the authority of Scripture. So he puts them on blast and kind of leaves from this interaction, and he goes out to the, the pagan region of Tyre and Sidon, and a lady comes up crying out to him, begging, please deliver my son or my child who's possessed by a demon. And in that moment, the disciples start to get a little bit embarrassed. But she cries out and calls him the son of David. This pagan woman accurately identifies him, whether she knows exactly what she's saying or not. Perhaps she knows Genesis 12 promises that God's going to save a people and through those people bless the nations. But either way, she correctly identifies him while the Jewish leaders are wrongly figuring out uh, who he is and actually combating and arguing with him. Jesus at first ignored her. The disciples embarrassed, they send her away. He lets them know, yes, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she doesn't give up. She comes and bows before him, begging and pleading in a posture of worship that he would do something. He replies in verse 26 um, and with a rather harsh statement saying, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Culturally, Jews would have referred to pagans, to outsiders as dogs. And her response is incredible. She says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Instead of getting offended, she understands I am an outsider. I'm not the one you're supposed to be here for. But I do understand you have mercy. I do understand you have compassion. I've heard about you. I'll eat the crumbs off the floor if you'll just let me get some crumbs. Jesus, rocked by her faith, heals her child and commends her faith and says, great is your faith. This pagan faith is unlike those who are supposed to know. And commends her faith, heals the woman's daughter while commending that faith. Now, I recount that for you this morning. Because I think it gives us a clue as to why Matthew then puts these two sections together, these particular miracles and the feeding of the 4,000. So let's jump in and you'll see that connection, I hope, by the Spirit. Again, Jesus went on from there, from that interaction, and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and went up to on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. So very simple what we see happening. Great crowds bring people with great infirmities to the great healer, and he performs great miracles. That's what happens in this text. Some came unable to speak and left speaking. Some came unable to function and left whole. Some came unable to walk but walked home. Some came unable to see but left having laid eyes on the very Son of God. Total transformation of very broken people. Think about this. They leave the very opposite of what they were coming in. Now, do you remember when Moses in our study in Exodus earlier this year, Moses was arguing with God. God had said, you're going to be my deliverer to set my people free. And he was like, but God, I don't think you understand who you're working with here. I'm like, I'm not very uh, good of speech in front of people. I can't talk very well. And do you remember how God, Yahweh, responds to Moses when he calls Moses in that interaction? What the Lord said to him in Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh, the Lord? Now, why is that relevant? 
Because it's only God who can do the kind of thing we see Jesus doing in these healings. Only God has the kind of power that can literally transform people from one thing to the exact opposite, to make the blind see. Throughout the Old Testament, like, no, 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 nobody does this except God. He's the one who controls eyes. He's the one who makes the blind blind or the blind to see. And friends, this is the kind of power King Jesus has because he's God in the flesh. This is no mere ordinary man, but it is the God man, truly God and truly man, healing and transforming the most broken of people. He can heal physical and spiritual infirmities. There's nothing King Jesus can't do. I didn't say there's anything Jesus couldn't do. I'm saying there's nothing he can't do today, present, ongoing, as the King of Kings. Now, you might have a good question. I would encourage you, we want to take just a second to say, what about healing today? If Jesus could heal in his day and was doing this in his day, should we expect he would heal everybody today, every time we pray? Well, no, not everybody. He walked around and did these healings. He didn't heal everyone, even in his own day. So it would be wrong for us to expect he would always heal everyone when he didn't always heal everyone, even in his own day. But also, I want you to understand is the point of the healings and miracles in the Gospels, and indeed in all of the Bible, is so that we might know the one true God's identity. Like, remember, even in our study of Exodus... Yahweh meant to make himself known to Egypt. No, no, no. These are my people. And all these false gods are false gods. And so I'm going to do all the plagues. I'm going to do this deliverance through the Red Sea. So you know who the one true God is. So in Israel, he did it. No, these massive signs are demonstrating who God really is. And even in the New Testament, this is what we see with the miracles and healings in the scriptures. John makes it crystal clear. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That is the book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Matthew, even in his gospel account, places all the healings and all these miracles and all these supernatural deliverances of demons and disease and death and sickness walking up the, uh, the mountain of his theological goal, and then he gets to it, we'll see in a couple of weeks, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 down to 19, where Peter confesses, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the rock, you're the Son of the living God. Matthew, no, 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 I'm, I'm getting to who he is. That's why I'm showing you all that he has done in this way. Jesus himself makes it clear that healings are to point you to his identity and even his authority to save sinners. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, I love that, they said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, <laughs> hint, he's God. He knows what's going on inside your dome before you do. He said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or say, rise and walk? But, so he's letting you know, this is why I'm doing this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, go home. He rose, he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So even Jesus lets you, no, 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 the paralytic, I got him up out, like I forgave him of his sins first. That's the more impressive thing. I got him up off of his uh, paralysis to show you I have the authority to do that so you understand who I am. And again, think about our text last week. The, the hypocritical false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. They were mad Jesus wasn't listening to the elders' tradition. And do you remember what he said about them? He quoted from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, speaking of the scribes and Pharisees. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. 
Now, I want you to know what's interesting in Isaiah 29 when he, he quotes that. So he's talking about his people being rebellious and sinful, honoring and worshiping him with their lips, but hip- hypocritical and not really worshiping in their hearts. And do you know what happens? Uh, Isaiah tells us, and yet God is still faithful to his promises. He still means to do something. And do you know how he describes evidence of when he does something, even though these people's hearts are jacked up and they're hypocritical? Isaiah 29, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear. Interesting. The words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. What do we see at the end of these healings? These pagan people glorify the God of Israel. So the Jewish leaders, wrongly hypocritical hearts, Jesus reached out and reaches out and heals these people, and they bring him glory and honor. Jesus is demonstrating these healings are to convince you of who I am, that you might bring glory and honor to God through me. The healing's primary purpose was to glorify the God of Israel and the person and work of Christ. Now, having said that, and hopefully biblically shown you that, can he heal? Absolutely. <laughs> Does Jesus still heal today? Absolutely. Is he? Some kind of physical infirmity and some kind of physical need, your greatest need? Absolutely not. Your greatest need is mercy and forgiveness from God in Christ. Can he heal you? Absolutely. Is that the thing you should be most concerned about? Absolutely not. See, this is the danger when secondary observations, good observations, supplant the primary. Then you'll miss the greatest point of the text, the greatest grace of the text. And you'll say yes to a lesser gift and miss the better one. Remember uh, one time... Uh, one of my birthdays growing up. Now, I grew up a football guy, a basketball guy, a baseball guy. Uh, but, you know, I'm just outside of Charlotte, and NASCAR is a big deal, right? I remember one time I get surprised by my father has tickets to a NASCAR race. Now, I just want you to imagine that as a part of this package of this birthday present, that first he gave me a couple of other presents. He gave me a hat of his favorite NASCAR driver. And he gave me those big uh, earphone-looking things to cover my ears <laughs> because the, the, the cars are too loud. And then he gave me the tickets. And I just want you to imagine I saw the tickets and I was like, eh, I'm going to throw those away. And I'm going to take these headphones and I'm going to pretend like I'm listening to music and I'm going to set my hat on the dresser. That would be foolish, right? Because the hat and the headphones are meant to be enjoyed at the race. So you might be taking these lesser gifts, which are good gifts, but missing the greatest gift, a time with my father at the race, watching a race. So when we look at these healings with the Lord Jesus, can he heal? Absolutely. But that's not the best part of this text. The best part of the text is these healings demonstrate he's the Savior and he can save you for all eternity. So may you not look at this and and, and by a secondary right observation, miss the glory of the greater grace that is right in front of you. Of course he can heal. And some people will get that, that gift in this life. So if you're sick, if you have an infirmity, what should you do? Call the elders of the church to anoint you and lay hands on you and pray for you. Now, some of y'all are like, oh, hold up, Clint. Now, you're starting to sound like you're charismatic. (laughs) No, I'm starting to sound biblical. You call me what you want to call me. James 5.14 is clear. (laughs) Bible says, if you're sick, call for elders to lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and pray that you might be healed. But even there in that text, do you know James' ultimate point? James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing with oil oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. These texts are recorded so that you would just trust that Jesus is the Christ. So pray and ask that he would heal you in this life. And very well, he might do it. He might not. But if your sins get forgiven, you go to be with him in glory. I promise you, your sins or all of your infirmities will be healed in glory. So you miss the greater gift if you make this just about healing. Because if you're in Christ, you are healed forever in glory, period. So you ask him to do it now. But you trust him if you don't, knowing he will do it there and then. Jesus has more power than you perceive. Ask him to heal you physically. He can. Ask him to heal you emotionally. He can. But best of all, he can heal you spiritually. And in glory, he will totally make you whole. And every bit of healing you need will be yours. He can transform sinners into saints. People into the opposite of what they once were. Pagan outsiders have now witnessed the same great miracles and healings that the Jews had back in chapter 14. And they glorify the God of Israel, the one who's the one responsible for doing. This is what happens when the grace of God transforms outsiders. We celebrate and we sing things like, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thy all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thy power alone can change the leper spots physically and melt the heart of stone spiritually. So I ask you this morning, have you been transformed by the God of Israel through faith in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us anyone's in Christ is a new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. And that new that has come, that restored heart and right relationship with God guarantees that glory of only healing. Are you glorifying God even now for making you new and healing you forever? Brothers and sisters, he's dealt with your sin. He crushed his son so that he could make you his son or daughter forever. And Jesus rose from the grave to make you new. Glorify the God of Israel because Jesus has more power than you perceive. Secondly, Jesus has, or Jesus' compassion is greater than you imagine. More power than you perceive, his compassion is greater than you imagine. Look again now at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So he's been healing them. But I assume he's also been teaching with them. And they've gone three days now without eating. So maybe that wasn't the plan. Maybe they didn't realize they're going to be there that long. But look at Jesus' heart. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. We see the king continue to display his heart. He has a heart of compassion, even for hungry pagans. He's unwilling to dismiss the crowds for fear that they might faint because they've been listening to him teaching. They've been watching him heal for three days. And he has a burden and a compassion for them. There's no compassion like the compassion of Christ. And no matter how compassionate you think he is, he's still more compassionate. J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle says, No one ever seems to have felt so much when he saw a crowd as Christ did. The Holy Spirit seems to point out to us this was the distinguishing feature of his character and the predominant feeling of his mind when he was among men. Compassion. Again, you guys know this. It's one, I have two of my favorite Greek words. Tetelestai, it is finished. And then splonknizomai. I have no idea if that's how you actually say it. That's my best effort, though. But it's this word, compassion. And it is this. It's only used in the New Testament. It's only used to talk about Christ. No one else. No one else is described as having splunknizomai. Only him. And it's this pain that he's moved into his bowels and his very core that he looks at crowds and he feels compassion. And in this moment, what I want you to understand is he feels compassion because they're hungry. 
Now, the other time we studied this, when we were in Matthew, however many years ago it was now, Matthew 9, 35 to 38, what did it say? He looked at the crowds and he felt compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he looked at them and saw spiritually, you're following, the, you're following the wrong people. You have no one to lead you to glory. He looked at them, he saw spiritual need, and he felt compassion. But right here he looks and sees physical need and feels compassion. And this is consistent with the Lord. If you care about someone's eternal suffering, well, then you care about their temporal suffering. If you care and don't want them to burn in hell, well, you care if their stomach is hungry. If you have compassion, you have it. Here and now, there and then. This is what we see in Christ. This has been the status quo of his ministry. So King's Cross, this also be the case for us. May we keep declaring the good news of the gospel because we have compassion on people eternally. And the only way they can reach glory and receive all the physical blessings is if they repent and believe and trust in Christ. So let us keep declaring the good news, but also let us keep displaying good deeds that commends that good news. Demonstrating, you know, I love you then and I love you right now. This is what followers of Christ, the authentic Christ, live like. Now it seems these crowds have eaten up whatever food they have over the course of time. And he doesn't want them to travel, travel back with empty stomachs. And so before uh, we move on and figure out what happens with that, here's what I want you to know. These crowds have been with Christ, listening to him, watching these healings for three days. What does that mean? Apparently it means their hunger to be in Jesus' presence was greater than the hunger in their bellies. That they realize to be with you is better even than to eat. That there's nothing like being in your presence is yours. Is your hunger to be in the presence of God greater than the hunger in your belly? Even on a Sunday morning, edging up towards lunchtime. <laughs> Do you long to be in his presence more than anything else? This is what we see from these pagan crowds, outsiders willing to miss three days worth of meals. Brothers and sisters all over the world willing to walk miles and miles and miles to gather underground, hiding, understanding if they get caught for worshiping King Jesus, they will be executed. And yet they do it because their hunger is for the Lord more even than for their safety. Oh, that God would make us hunger for Christ's presence like these pagans, like our brothers and sisters all over the world. Such that when we're making sacrifices, we don't even call them sacrifices. For one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. These are not sacrifices to be in the presence of God. But notice how the, the, the disciples respond skeptically, verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? <laughs> it's like, we're in the middle of the wilderness. There ain't no grub here. Jesus, you talking about feeding all these people? We've been here three days. We're hungry. We're starting to get cranky. And you talking about feeding all Where are we going to get the food? It's like, really, fellas? <laughs> like, it's just a chapter ago he fed 5,000 people. <laughs> now, again, Mark lets us know it was a different season of the year. It was lush grass and, and, and the first one. This one's now dry. And okay, amen. It's, it's, been, it's been some time, not just a chapter for them. <laughs> but they've seen Christ feed 5,000 people with next to nothing. And yet in this moment, they look around like, yo, I don't know what we're going to do. But aren't we quick in our own hearts? To forget that God has provided for us in the past. And get into a moment where we need something and immediately panic like, God, I ain't got nothing. To, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> Just like these disciples. Now, it's possible that the disciples thought uh, that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 Jews was a picture of the coming messianic banquet. And they concluded Jesus wouldn't give such a blessing to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the outsiders. So it's possible. Maybe they're not thinking about that because they're like, nah, these are outsiders. We ain't doing that for them. That was, that was for us. <laughs> So maybe that's what's going on. 
But Jesus is more powerful than they perceive, and he's more compassionate than they imagine. Now, we see a few things similar to the feeding of the 5,000. There's a few observations in these two different feedings. Number one, the miracle actually happened. This really happened. It was a supernatural miracle. It literally, physically happened. Number two, it's not, uh, as according to uh, popular liberal uh, interpretation of this text, this is not some story about sharing where Jesus like inspired everybody and there was enough food in the crowd somehow to feed everybody, even though they have been there for three days and surely they had eaten all they had left. And like, oh, let's share. And look how we shared. And everybody, okay, that's nonsense. There's nowhere in the text that's utter lunacy. Like just conclude you don't believe the Bible rather than believe something like that. It's not there. So that's not the case. There's not enough food, even if there's a couple snacks left, to feed more than 10,000 people. But also, this is not an accidental duplication of the same story. Again, it's with the Gentiles rather than the Jews. And later in chapter 16, Jesus is going to recount both events. So it's clear this literally happened, and we're talking about two different feedings. So look at Jesus' response. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, this event unfolds in very similar fashion. Jesus tells the crowd, sit down. He takes the bread and the fish, gives thanks, prays for the meal, and distributes to his disciples. They distribute to the crowds. And just like in the first feeding, everybody eats and there are leftovers. God can take minimal resources and create leftovers out of them. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need natural means. He has supernatural power. This is what we see. But let me highlight just a few differences in these two feedings. Number one, in the first one, the disciples initiated uh, concerning the hunger of the people of God. So they're like, yo, Jesus, everybody's hungry when it's God's people. But notice who initiates this feeding. Jesus says, hey, they've been here three days. I don't want to send them away hungry. He initiates concerning the pagans. So the people of God are like, yo, are you going to feed us? The Son of God is like, hey, are we going to feed them? Notice the compassion of Christ for all people even in that observation. Now, the most obvious, again, difference is you got 4,000 in this one rather than 5,000 plus women and children. In the first feeding, he took five loaves and two fish, had 12 baskets left over. This time, he takes seven loaves and a few small fish, and there's seven baskets left over. Now, what are the differences in the numbers? Why do the numbers matter? Well, number one, because it's a true account. So if it was a parable or it was just made up and you were making up another story similar to the first one, surely you would increase the number, not decrease it. Right? So you make the story better. Like you've only got seven left over instead of 12. It would seem to be you, like, let's, let's one-up this thing. But it's a true account. So, so number one, the numbers are different because it actually happened. But also, 12 left over from the Jewish miracles, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 disciples who Jesus is pouring into, the new Israel, the new covenant people, demonstrating this is indeed pointing us to and foreshadowing that great banquet in the end. Whereas the number seven is symbolic of completion. Jesus has extended grace in, the, in this miracle to the Gentiles as he had to the Jews. So it's very possible that this is meant to teach us that the great banquet prophesied in Isaiah chapter 25, 6 to 12, and then fulfilled in Revelation chapter 19, 6 to 10, will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, just like Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9 says. Now, the last difference between the two is not observable in our English translations, but uh, include, uh, deal with the Greek word basket. 
And in the first one, the basket was particularly a Jewish basket, the Greek word used. This one's it's a generic basket that even pagans would have used. Again, pointing to the Gentile presence in this miracle. So when we put all this together, what do we see? Jesus miraculously provides for insiders and outsiders. These miraculous healings and feedings happen to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus' compassion feeds and satisfies those inside and those outside. Did Christ not say that he was the bread of life in John chapter 6? They jam him up. Like, yo, we just want some full bellies. Like, keep feeding us. We're not interested in who you are. We just, we just want full bellies. What does Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 33? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of God that satisfies forever. Are you satisfied this morning in Christ? He's compassionate. He invites you to come to him. And you might be like, but if I'm not a Christian, like, what do I have to bring to the table to get him to accept me, to let me in? Listen to the invitation of Isaiah chapter 55 and tell me what you have to bring to the table. Come everyone who thirsts. So you got to be thirsty. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, uh-oh, you got to be broke. Somebody say praise God. He has no money. Come. Buy and eat. You get to buy without money. So come if you're thirsty. Come if you're broke and have nothing to bring. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What do you need? Need. What do you need? Hunger and thirst. What do you need? You need to run to Christ, the one who says, I'm the bread of life and I'm the one who can satisfy you. And you come empty handed saying, I have nothing good to offer, but may I have and eat at your table. And he says, feast on me. With these three stories, the Canaanite woman, the healings beside the Sea of Galilee, and now the feeding among the 4,000, Matthew's showing us Jesus' compassion for the nations. God wants global glory, and he means to get it by giving his goodness and his mercy to people from every tribe, tongue, and language through faith in his son, the bread of life. See the heart of God in the gospel. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. First, the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. The insiders and the outsiders, our God is more compassionate than you realize Third and final observation about the authentic Jesus. Jesus' guidance is wiser than you know. His guidance is wiser than you know. So again, put this together and what Matthew's doing and showing us this. The, the Canaanite woman came to Jesus crying out for mercy. The Gentile crowds brought their sick and their diseased to get healing. Jesus miraculously fed the 4,000 men plus women and children. But the very leaders of God's people come to Jesus here in our text seeking to trip him up, to test him. So the outsiders are coming to him with nothing but need, and he's blessing. The insiders are coming like, I don't really like how you're running around flexing like you're somebody special. And so they come to test and, and, and uh, try to, to get him to demonstrate something of his weakness. Now, the Pharisees and scribes are, and the Sadducees normally didn't roll together. They didn't like each other. But again, because they don't like who Jesus is and what he's doing and the followers he's getting and the kind of claims he's making, they come together to attack 
as enemies work together to attack King Jesus. So look again at 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, What is evening? You say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. Now, Jesus uh, gives us a little, little salty clapback right here um, to put them in their place in this interaction. He's like, you know how to interpret the weather, but you don't know how to recognize the one who controls it. Like, you're able to look at the cloud and figure some things out, but you don't know how to read your Bible and understand the Son of God is talking to you. And so he's kind of pointing this out in this interaction. One scholar, the irony, D.A. Carson says is this, the proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. <laughs> the fact that they ask for a sign is evidence they're not correctly reading the signs. <laughs> they're missing it. Like, think about what we've just studied and read and what he's done. And they're talking about, show me a sign. <laughs> he's like, y'all can't even just look around and make observations about who I must be and the things I am doing. So Jesus responds in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Friends, wicked people have always asked for more proof from God than what God has already revealed. Sinners always say, show me something else. They're looking God Almighty in the face in this moment and demanding he reveal himself in some other way. Do you see the irony of that? They're talking to God in the flesh. <laughs> talking about, show me a sign. God is in the flesh. <laughs> like, what more else do you need? He's doing all these healings, all these miracles, and you still don't believe. This is really a test of God's willingness to submit to their standards. And Jesus responds by letting them know, no, no, here's how God's going to reveal himself. Through the law and the prophets pointing to the cross. They'll see the sign of signs eventually. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the, the cross. The king of glory will be crucified. And just like Jonah got up out of the belly of the fish, so Jesus will get up out of the belly of the earth. That's why Jesus, no, 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 you got everything you need, law and prophets. The law and prophets told you how to look and how to interpret the signs and understand who I am, and you're rejecting me. Hard-hearted unbelief will always ask for more evidence when it wants to just reject God to begin with. God reveals himself through his word. And his word tells us he reveals himself climactically through the cross. The Pharisees simply do not want Jesus to be God, and so they're trying to trip him up. But friends, there's good news this morning. If you want to know God, he's made himself knowable. And you don't have to go ask for some sign to figure it out. He's revealed himself through his word. It's not through sign reading or tarot cards or internal feelings, but it's in his word which shows us the gospel and the spirit of Christ converts us and shows us to believe. So friends, don't test God and demand he prove himself to you. It's demonic. To test God and demand you prove yourself to me with that posture. Satan in the wilderness with the Lord Jesus in the temptations. Matthew chapter 4. The devil took him to the holy city, set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's demonic to tell God, You obey me, and then I'll believe in you. You do what I say based on my power so that I believe in you. Rather than, God, you've revealed yourself through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. According to the scriptures, I need you. Show me you. Reveal yourself to me. Most of the time when people demand signs from God, they have the assumption he won't do it. And so then when he doesn't do it, you can justify not believing in him altogether. Now, friends, he might not do it. 
Not because he's not able to do it, but because he doesn't have to submit to you. That might be the issue. And that's some of the issue we see going on with these scribes and Pharisees. They're saying, submit to us, do a sign when we tell you to, so then therefore we will understand. Again, rebellious sinners often demand God for more signs because they don't want to relate to God on God's terms. So friends, if you don't know God, don't test him. Ask him to reveal himself to you through the person and work of Christ by the Spirit. Don't test him saying, hey, do this random thing, like make the red light turn green, you know, when I say it. Like, don't do silly things like that. No, God, you've showed yourself to me through Christ. Give me faith to believe this is how you've revealed yourself. And know that the good shepherd guides his sheep in community with his people by his spirit according to his word. Jesus hops in a boat with his disciples and he heads to the other side. And what we have in this interaction is kind of this humorous miscommunication between Jesus and the disciples. So he's warning them about this false teaching because he means to shepherd them, to protect them from false teaching. His wisdom is greater than they know. He's guiding them to glory. And so he's trying to protect them, and they misinterpret and take him literally. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. Again, I love the disciples in these kind of interactions. So I imagine they're on the boat on the way over, and somebody's belly's growling. They're real cranky. And it's like, yo, who's got the, anybody got leftover bread? You, nobody got any? And so like this point now, I mean, they're on the, they're, they're mad, they're angry. They get to the other side, they're walking around. And then Jesus starts talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. So you got a boat full of hungry men with no food. That's a sad story and a, a recipe for disaster. But Jesus having this interaction, the feeding of the 4,000, the false teaching and the hypocrisy of the scribes from back in chapter 15, understands this is a good moment to disciple and teach my followers something about how false teaching can permeate and grow like leaven. Like yeast, like, like last week's yeast, you put it in and it's growing, you don't realize what it's doing. It can grow and get expansive and, and cause all kinds of problems or it can cause something new. And Jesus is telling, hey, be, be careful of false teaching of these scribes and Pharisees. And the fellows are like, oh, shoot, we forgot the bread. But, but hold up. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. Like, were we supposed to take bread from them? So at this point, I wonder if they're kind of just confused. Like, are we supposed to steal bread from them? But that feels like that's wrong. You're the Messiah. Like, so they're trying to understand. Like, what, Jesus, what are you talking about with bread? Jesus, verse 8, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? <laughs> Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 or the how many baskets you gathered? The seven loaves for the 4,000 how many baskets you gathered? So Jesus has like a serious SMH facepalm moment with the disciples. Like, fellas, really? And notice what he's saying. Like these hungry bellies and you guys are losing your mind and apparently your faith. Are you not still convinced that I can and will provide for you? I fed more than 10,000 people with just some, a few fish and some loaves twice. And y'all are worried about if we're going to be able to eat. You're panicking not having bread. Don't you know I will take care of you? How many times do I have to miraculously feed your hungry bellies for you to believe my God will take care of me? Remember Israel and the bitter water made sweet? Remember the manna from heaven? Remember the striking the rock and getting water? Remember how they were grumbling and disbelieving and yet I kept providing for them? So he's saying to his disciples, fellas, I've got you. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'll take care of everything else. Don't you remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? 
Don't you remember? Look at the, the flowers of the field and the birds of the heavens. Don't I take care of them? Aren't you much more important? Fellas, I got you. You need not worry. I will take care of you. Christian, you are loved by the king. He loves you. He is with you. He will never leave you. He will always give you what's best for you in order to shepherd you to glory. You can bank on that. God's past faithfulness should be more than enough for us to rest in his future faithfulness. He's been faithful in the past, hasn't he? You're here hearing the word of God preached, singing praises to God, meeting new people, pointing you to God. He's been faithful. You can rest in his faithfulness in the present and the future. So Jesus is like, come on, guys, I got you. But that's not what I'm talking about right now. Look at verse 11. How is it you fail to understand? I did not speak about the bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So now they understand. Oh, you were telling us about the hypocritical false teaching and the tradition of the elders over the word of God. Now that's what you're protecting us. You're guiding us. You're making sure we don't listen to lies from false teachers that lead us astray and grow in us like yeast and lead us to abandon the scriptures themselves for man-made traditions. See, Jesus guards us through his word faithfully taught. This is what we see even in, in a principle and application and reality of this. As the teaching of the church goes, so goes the church. The church is definitely more than her teaching, but never less. The word of God must be, is, is the central ministry of the church because out of the teaching of the word flows everything else we do. That's why Jesus is warning his disciples, hey, you can't go to people who wrongly teach the word. That will take you to hell. No, I'm the one. I'm the good shepherd going to guide you to glory. And you can know I'm guiding you to glory by my spirit through my word. Visitors, if you're looking for a church, whether you join this one or not, look for a church that faithfully preaches and teaches the word that submits to the, to the scriptures. That, that's the functional authority. Not just lip service, but actual functional authority is given to the word. A church that gets the word wrong will inevitably get everything else wrong. Because inevitably everything else will then fall on the traditions of man. So beware of pharisaical false teaching by following Jesus, the good shepherd. We read in Revelation chapter 7, we sing about it. Jesus is showing us his shepherding heart. Just after tribulation, Revelation 7, verse 15, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, all too often as followers of Christ, we get distracted and want immediate, tangible needs fixed when Christ is more concerned about who he's forming us into and getting us to glory safely. He's discipling us when we just want him to execute for us. He's giving us a mind of wisdom when we're merely, merely looking for a hand of blessing. He's interested in forming us, not just feeding us. The point of the miracles, the healings, the signs is to point you to the Savior. Does he do them here and now? Yes, sometimes. But it's a broken world, and we will all eventually die should he tarry. So all of us at some level are like Lazarus, resurrected just to die again. <laughs> but there and then, in glory, no more crying ever. No more sickness ever. No more disease ever. No more lame, crippled, blind, deaf, mute 
ever. No more wheelchairs. No more money ran out. No more inflation. No more divorce and broken marriages. No more miscarriages. No more anxiety and depression. No more straying children. No more betrayal. No more cancer or heart problems. No more alcoholism. No more addictions. No more affairs. No more racism and prejudice. No more catfishing. No more suicide. No more global pandemics. No more seizures. No more psychotic episodes. No more demonic possession. No more big pharma destroying people. No more complex conflict among God's people. No more persecution. No more need for missions. No more tears. No more death ever. Jesus is the good shepherd who will guide us here and now to there and then. But he is only available to those who look to him understand Jesus is the Christ. The good shepherd who will lead us home to glory. His guidance is wiser than you know. And so I conclude with a few questions. Are you lowly this morning? Jesus is more powerful than you perceive. Are you poor and needy, sick and sore, lost and ruined by the fall? Jesus is more compassionate than you imagine. Are you quick to sin, slow to trust his provision? Do you get lost looking at the trees of what you think you need right now while forgetting the forest of discipleship Jesus is guiding you through? Jesus' guidance is wiser than you know. Christ has the power to transform the broken, compassion to satisfy the hungry, and the wisdom to guide us all to glory. Non-Christian, bring your sin to Christ. That's your greatest infirmity. He has the power, the compassion, and the wisdom to know how to save you and make sure you get to glory. The longing in your heart is a God-sized hole that will remain hungry until you repent and believe in Christ. And church, ask for God to give you his compassionate heart eternally and temporally for people, for the nations. God, give me your compassion for all people. Pray that. And then bring people to Jesus' feet like the pagan friends. Do that through prayer. Pray for God to save people. Do that by sharing the gospel with them in personal evangelism. Do that by inviting them to church. Bring them to Christ. It's the most loving thing you can do for any human being on the planet. And let us help one another avoid false teaching and follow the good shepherd by walking together and discipling one another by the power of the Spirit according to the word of God. Let's close in prayer.